Welcome to the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Cue momentous riff. So this week's guest, Shauna Kenny, wrote a killer blog post over at Brevity called Never Call Yourself a Writer and Other Rules for Writing. It's brilliant. Go read it. It's in the show notes. Everything. Everything you've come to expect. Okay, so I read it, then went to her website, found her email, and two weeks later, here she is. Send thank you notes to the internet. She's written and edited a few books, but we don't talk about that because I'm hoping to have her on again when her new book comes out this summer. It's a book she's co-written with her husband, so stay tuned to that. But we do dive into her punk rock roots and the fanzine she founded as a teenager. You know, the usual good stuff you've come to expect from CNFHQ. Um, do me a solid. Subscribe to the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a.k.a. hashtag CNF, wherever you get your podcasts, namely the Apple Podcast app or Google Play Music, and give it a rating. Also, subscribe to my monthly newsletter where I send out my reading list just once a month. You listen to all these writers talk, so naturally you like reading, right? Okay, I'm tired of talking. Here's Shauna Kenny. Enjoy. Town in Southern Maryland uh, called St. Mary's County. It's about an hour and a half south of D.C. It's very rural. All that's there is a Navy base, which is what brought my parents there, and Amish people. Um, so it's a weird mix. And my closest neighbors were miles away. So there was really no punk scene or literary scene for me to get into. I spent a lot of time alone. I spent a lot of time um, creating with friends. And then when I got to be old enough to go to DC, I was traveling with friends as a teenager to DC for punk shows. And I was really influenced and captivated by that culture. And I started doing a fanzine when I was 16 in high school called no scene zine because I lived in the middle of nowhere and there was no scene. And, um, and that I think became a way for a shy kid to have an excuse to talk to people. Um, my fanzine was all about skateboarding and music and, and pop culture. And I would create it for hours and for months on end with friends cutting and pasting. And then we Xerox a whole bunch of them and go up to DC and sell them or hand them out at shows and trade them with other zinesters and trade them with other zinesters through the back pages of maximum, maximum rock and roll. And so I was, you know, becoming pen pals with people all over the country and the punk scene sort of became a, a you know, this whole pre-internet web of people for me to connect with. So doing zines was really my beginnings of being a writer, although I didn't know that. Yeah, that's a very like entre- entrepreneurial thing that you that you did then <laughs> to kind of just like, oh, the, here's this thing. Here's this. Where do you think that comes from? Um, well, I think I witnessed what was going on in the DC punk scene that it was very DIY. They were starting, kids were starting their own record labels. Ian Mackay was 18 when he started discord records. 
They put out their own records, folded the covers, did their own artwork and distributed them themselves and put on their own shows. And I saw all this happening nearby. And I think that really empowered me. It showed me and a whole other generation of kids how to do it. You know, that you didn't have to wait for the powers that be to sanction your work or, um, you know, buy it and promote it in a, a certain way. That this is something that you could do yourself. Yeah, like it's totally just bypassing the the gatekeepers in a lot of ways and doing the thing that you feel strongly about. Yeah, yeah, and that's stayed with me. I mean, I think that's an ethic that has carried me through life. It's funny you said you were a, you know a shy kid, and the the zine was a, a way for you to sort of break out of that that shell. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of journalists and reporters. There, uh, some of them are kind of reticent by nature, but the vocation is a way to to break out of that. And uh, what a you know, what about that? Did did you embrace? Like, did was it something like you noticed you were shy? And like, this is a good way for me to break through, <laughs> or was it just I don't know? Like, uh, how did how did you no. process that? Yeah, it wasn't a conscious choice at the time. I just love to create. I've always been a creative kid. I made things out of clay. I drew and painted. And um, I think when I was a teenager, I realized I, I played bass and I played trumpet, but I realized I wasn't a good enough musician <laughs> or maybe a confident enough musician to ever be in a band. So my way of contributing to the scene was by making a zine. That's something I could do and something that I felt confident about. Um, but looking back now, I see that it also enabled me to talk to people. It gave me an excuse to talk to people, which the natural progression was I got into journalism in high school and in college. I wrote for my school paper and never really knowing that I wanted to be a writer. Like that was just something I did for fun Mm. on the side. I didn't know that people could be writers. (laughs) I don't don't know. I come from a very working class family and, and I'm a first generation college student. So, you know, the best that my parents could hope for was that we would, my sister and I would graduate from high school. Hmm. It was hard to really think beyond that. College wasn't talked about in my home. My dad um, was a maintenance man for the Department of Defense and my mom was a secretary. So, you know, people in our family were not artists. Right. So what was it do you think about books and words that uh, you were so attracted to at at a young age that eventually like spring springboarded you to writing for your high school paper and then and then so go, from there you know it blossomed into something much more. Yeah, well, like any reader, of course, I loved that they could take me away. Mm. Like stories could transport me out of my small town and out of my sheltered experience to other eras, other countries, other dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I started to read things like, you know, Judy Bloom or A Tree Grows in Brooklyn um, and all of the S.E. Hinton books, I felt like, wow, writers can say so much on the page that maybe we don't talk about in real life. And that's what it's done for me. I mean, I, I'm much better on the page than I am verbally. Mm. And I feel like writing has enabled me to talk about some of those things that I would never have been able to talk about in person, whether it's poverty or, 
um, awkward teenage years or sexuality, feminism, you just, just concepts that I find difficult to talk about. Yeah. It's easier for me to, to struggle with on the page. Yeah. You're, you're, it's, it's one, what's so great about, you know, reading, reading your work is that you, you do have such a distinctive voice on the page. Like you can, it's just like, so like it crackles with, you know, your, your style, which is just so wonderful to read. And I wonder, like, how did you, how did you come to that, to the, to the voice that you have today? Like, what were some of the, your early, early software that you were able to update over the years to, to come to this crystallized version of who you are on the page? Maybe just repetition. You know, I was always journaling, keeping a diary as a kid. And then the zine really helped me to develop that voice because I had this outlet with no rules, no editor, <laughs> and I could just kind of be free on the page. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one putting this out. So it was really no holds barred. And I think that gave me the freedom to sort of figure out who I was and how I sounded on the page. And then journalism too. Journalism taught me some more, some rules that I didn't know about, right? I, you know, the zine was anarchy and then mm -hmm. journalism gave me this framework to work within. But I think that all of that helped me to develop my voice. Right. And, and doing doing that early on, you, you you gave yourself permission to do to do that kind of work, and eventually, at some point or another, you need, or maybe maybe you didn't, but a lot of times you need some degree of validation. Who was in your corner at that time that that kind of gave you say, you know what, Shauna, like keep going, keep going. Mm. I guess, I mean, you know, it was really, it was my punk community mm. because I didn't know any other writers. I didn't know anyone in academia. Um, I wrote Ian Mackay a fan letter. I, I, my mom cut an article out of the Washington Post when I was 16. They, they'd, they'd done an interview with Ian Mackay. He was starting his band Embrace after Minor Threat, pre-Fugazi. Pre mm -hmm. And he mentioned in the interview that he answers all of his fan mail. So, of course, I got to work writing him a letter and I'm, you know, I'm 16 and I do a zine in Southern Maryland and no one cool lives here. And, and I'd like to interview you. Um, and he wrote me back like a month later. I got a letter back from him and he encouraged me to keep going. And he also uh, encouraged me to introduce myself next time I saw him at a show and said that he'd like to meet me. And I think just that accessibility and that little bit of encouragement was all I needed <laughs> enough to make yeah. me. Dance. Um, so I did end up interviewing him and, and writing back to him. We went back and forth a few times and then met him at a show. And I think just seeing what he was able to do on his own without the permission of others. And then just those little few words of encouragement were enough to keep me going during those years right right it's so important to whatever it is we do to kind of like find your people and find your tribe yeah. and uh it seems like from a from an early point like you were able to sort of sort of weave your way into some sort of tribe and that was those punk those punk years and uh, yeah. especially and then you know you could probably got into your writer writerly tribes and 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 such but so what was it about the the punk life and the punk tribe that drew you in it was so 
opposite of everything I'd been exposed to before. You know, I lived in this small conservative Navy based town, grew up with a, in a strict Catholic military family. And, you know, just hearing bands like the Dead Kennedys and Circle Jerks and <laughs> Sex Pistols just be so anti-establishment was mind-blowing and exciting for me. I was like, wow, there's a whole other world out there that I need to find. Yeah. It speaks to me. I never really felt like I fit in here, but maybe I fit in somewhere else. Or maybe there are other people like me somewhere. <laughs> I was like on, a, on an alien planet or something. <laughs> and and when you were when you were able to uh, you know get land you know the the big interview with with Ian like what were some of the things that you that you asked him? Oh God, I don't remember. <laughs> I'm sure they were stupid questions. <laughs> um, but oddly enough, so we wrote back and forth a couple times, and then years later, I interviewed him as a journalist for some magazines, and I've and I interviewed him for that 9:30 Club book project. So I know him now, and I had to reach out to him for the 9:30 Club book project a couple years ago, and we had an interview set up, and I called him at the assigned time. And he was like, hang on a second, I want to read you something. And he started reading a letter. It's like, dear Ian, I know you must get tons of fan mail, but I just had to reach out to tell you how much I admire you and how much your work has inspired me. It was my 16-year-old words he was reading back to me. That's <laughs> amazing. Feel my whole face turn red, and I like covered my ears. I was like, "Shut up! Why do you have this? Be quiet!" And he continued to read the letter, and he said, "Oh, I have a friend who's been helping me archive some of my things, and I came across three of your letters, and I scanned them for you, and I'm going to send them to you." And he and he was like, "He was like, don't be embarrassed. You were a really sweet kid. You still are." And it was just, it was. It was so weird. To, and then when he sent me the PDFs of my letters, you know, bubbly handwriting, misspelled vegetarianism, and <laughs> happy faces. <laughs> it was just a, you know, a portal to my teen self that was actually quite a gift. It was really cool. That's, yeah, what it like that must what was that what was that like to not only that he had hung on to that letter but that that he recognized who you were and yeah what was that like when you reflect on that like what does that what does that mean that he that he was able to do that for you and uh read that read that back to you i know that was really special i mean i i think he hangs on to everything he's a hoarder so i'm not special <laughs> um. <laughs> but he recognized you nonetheless he slash punk documentarian but <laughs> really nice that he sent those to me and and kind of gave me that window into my 16 year old self you know because i don't i don't have my diaries from back then i have my zines mm -hmm. but to see where i was at the time and it's also funny because essentially i'm kind of the same person you know i was talking about vegetarianism and straight edge and all of these things that were swirling around in the air at the time and i'm still vegetarian I, i'm still straight edge I, yeah. um, just a little more worldly now i guess but um yeah the essence of me was there yeah and it's funny that you it's like your, your writing has such an edge to it and that to hear you say like you're so straight edge 
I wonder, <laughs> like, it's, I think anybody who's read your work would be like, oh, there's, there's like a, there is a rawness and a, I really like a punkness to a lot, to a lot of your work. And to hear you say you're straight edge seems to cut against that. So it's like, do you try to lead like a more, not, not refined, but a, a straight edge type life so you can be crazy on the page? I know. I don't know. You know, I always wanted to be Hunter S. Thompson without the drugs. Right. Like, <laughs> that was my ideal when I was in college because I loved his writing and his adventures and and the the freedom that evoked it, it, in reading it. But I've never really been interested in the whole like drug culture. Yeah. So maybe that's my way of, you know, embracing both sides of me. So, so you you mentioned Hunter, Hunter Thompson again. He's got his own his own brand of that Gonzo journalism. Yeah. And so, who were some other influential? Let's say it, it can be fiction, but also let's you know nonfiction writers. Like, who were some of those? Like, they gave you like a key, and they're like, "Oh, you can do that." They unlock something. Like, I didn't know that was possible. Yeah. So who were some of those other writers? Uh, you know, I love Jack Kerouac. I loved all the beats. A, a lot of male writers early on, you know, I wasn't uh, aware of a lot of women writers until later. And then I got into Annie Dillard and Joan Didion and um, people like that, Bell Hooks. Um, but I loved the freedom that the beats showed on the page to me. I was mm -hmm. like, wow, you can just, you know, you can just be rambly and, and do the stream of conscious stuff and, and write about your really personal experiences without censor, you know? I think yeah. something about that empowered me. But then I also love stories about poor and marginalized people. I love A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. That's one of the few books that I've returned to to read again and again. Mary Carr, Michelle T. Um, I, I just like people who write about being on the fringes. Do you consider yourself more of a freelancer or are you? Yeah, I'm definitely freelance. I've written okay. for the LA Weekly, um, New York Times, narratively. I've gotten the opportunity to do some long form stuff for them, which is really fun. I'd like to do more of that. But yeah, I'm definitely freelance, mm -hmm. self-employed, <laughs> independent contractor. Right. Yeah, I know, I know what that's like. The, <laughs> what's great about it and what's painfully frustrating about it, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it has its pros and cons. But, you know, I, I worked in the corporate world for a few years after college, and I wasn't cut out for that either. I can't do the office culture thing, the eight to five thing, um, the long commute thing in L.A. <laughs> yeah. Um, what uh, with the, your time in the corporate world there, uh, do you remember a particular moment where you're like, I, this is it, I no, I can't do this anymore. I need to get back to my zine roots. <laughs> I don't know if it was a moment or just like a gradual, you know, building of hatred. <laughs> a slow erosion. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's when I applied to grad school, actually. Okay. I um, When I went to grad school, when I applied to grad school, my book had already been out uh, five or six years. My first book, my memoir, I'd, I'd done a book tour, I sold foreign rights, had been optioned for film a couple of times. And I was freelance writing and I, I just really didn't know to, where to go from there. I was invited in as a guest teacher, a visiting author a couple of times to UCLA. 
And the teacher who invited me in said, why aren't you teaching? You know, they thought he thought that I would be good at it. And I said, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I applied to their program to teach and they were like, oh, it's nice that you have a book out, but it'd be better if you had an MFA. Mm. So then I really started and I'd never really thought about the MFA. Um, So I started looking into that. I had a friend who taught teaches women's studies here at Cal State Long Beach. Uh, she has a PhD and she really held my hand through the whole, that I found the whole application process to be really intimidating. I didn't want to take the GRE. Um, I wanted teaching experience. So I needed a TA ship. I needed some financial help. I, did, I just was bewildered by the whole thing. And she really walked me through that process. And I applied to programs that were basically based on a writing sample and in places where I thought I could live and where I would get the teaching experience. And I ultimately ended up going to UNCW, which is in North Carolina, which meant quitting my corporate job and my husband and I picking up and moving 3,000 mm-hmm. miles back to the East Coast um, and living in a small town in North Carolina. Yeah. But yeah, so it was a huge shift for us. Um, a huge change, a huge cut in pay, um, and a huge learning experience for me because I had no idea. <laughs> you know, I was a little older than the rest of the students that I was in school with. I was so it's ten years since my undergrad degree. Um, I'd published a book. I was married. I don't drink. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I had a very lively literary community here in L.A. I hosted literary events, so I'd made tons of friends with writers of all genres here um, and felt very supported and connected to a community. So moving to this small town to really just focus on writing for three years was really weird. How important was it for you to... like? it's like this kind of theme of these tribes you're able to to build. Uh, like, how important was it for you to to forge those little those little tribes where wherever you were? Like, you know, you had the the punk scene and the zine, and then in L.A. you you know you forged these little you know the these literary events and groups and so forth. So, like, uh, what what inside you is like? It seems like you're really driven to do that as a as a service to other people, but also probably as a service to yourself in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's it's my lifeline. I mean, who are we without each other? Uh, I don't know. I just always been that way. And then I've also been um, disconnected from my family since a young age. I was disowned when I was 18. And I I mean, there's been a lot of healing that's happened since then. and, And I'm back in touch with them. But I've had to sort of forge my own family out in the world. And I think punk rock is part of that. I think my literary scene is part of that. And then, yeah, when I when we moved to North Carolina, um, grad school was really beneficial in a lot of ways, but I didn't necessarily feel like academia was my people. So my husband and I opened a bookstore. <laughs> Don't open a bookstore during grad school, first of all. Um, <laughs> but we opened an independent bookstore called Rebel Books. Um, where we reached out to the community, had open mics, poetry nights, cooking demonstrations. We sold all kinds of anarchist and LGBTQ literature and um, stuff that was hard to find otherwise in that town. 
and it was short lived. It was only open for a year, but I think through that we really found our people. Mm. What did you learn most from that experience? Oh, I learned that I, <laughs> I, I love to read books. I love to write books, but I don't really give a shit about selling books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a terrible business person, basically. Uh-huh. Um, but the beauty of that whole experience was that we found our community. It, it, it drew like-minded people to us. You know, we had critical mass bike rides. We had vegan um, cookbook authors come to do cookbook demonstrations. We had banned book books week produced in conjunction with the ACLU and the state. And, you know, it just, it helped us to meet our tribe again. And like, you've got to, you know, you say your, your work has been like New York times, you know, playboy vice. I, how are you able to, to break into such, so like iconic, um, iconic publications like what's your submission process like and then how do you deal with the inevitable rejection because you know sometimes for you can pitch a place like New York Times 20 30 40 times and not get in yeah. so you know how did you how did you manifest that and and uh you know process that whole process yeah um I guess just getting into journalism at such a young age I got used to the idea of rejection <laughs> you know so it, it really it has to roll off your back and I always have a lot of projects going on at once so it's not like I pitch an outlet and sit there waiting hopefully for the next few weeks I you know I have editing projects I'm teaching I may be working on another story I may be you know coaching someone through writing their memoirs. Um, so I've always had a lot of different things going on and been able to shift gears pretty quickly, but yeah, just, just never giving up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm spacious. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most, uh, that's, cause that's a, that's a wide swath of the writing genre, you know, some, some coaching and editing and the writing. And so what is the, where do you get the most satisfaction among all those? I like it all because and they all, I feel, feel like they all activate different parts of my brain, but um, coaching is something new in my life. It's just kind of evolved out of teaching so many classes. I've had students come to me afterward and want to work with me one-on-one, and I never really knew that that was a thing mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. a couple years ago. Um, and I live in LA, the land of life coaches, so it's something that I've made fun of for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And now here I am, a coach. No, I'm, I'm in no way a life coach. <laughs> Disclaimer. Yeah. Um, don't do what I did. But, um, but yeah, it, that just sort of naturally evolved. And I love working one-on-one with people and holding their hands through big projects. I, I want to be that person for them that I didn't have or, or that I wished I'd had. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of satisfaction in that for me. And I love teaching. I love the whole energy of the classroom and um, bouncing ideas off of one another and spontaneity and, and just really watching writers develop. It gives me a lot of joy. Do, do you have, or did you have like a, an influential teacher or mentor that you're able to kind of like model yourself after? Mm. Um, all, you know, all of my grad school teachers brought something different to the table and looking back, I learned so much from every one of them. You know, I don't know that it was, that they specifically mentored me um, individually, but just watching 
the way they taught and, and how they presented the material and met me where I was. You know, I wasn't a particularly educated grad student. I, like I said, I'd been out of undergrad for 10 years. I had a degree in film and communications. Hmm. Most of my peers were 23 year olds who just finished degrees in literature. I didn't even know how to talk about writing. You know, I just felt like I didn't have the book. I knew I liked to read, but I wasn't able to explain, you know, why I liked or didn't like something. I just felt like I didn't even have that vocabulary. Um, So I'm really actually grateful that my professors were um, gentle and patient with me. Felt a lot, I learned a lot just from watching. Yeah, because I could be, that's real intimidating, like coming into a place where people have this, sometimes a pretentious literacy about them where they can talk about Chaucer and, and all the, the, the big capital English lit um writers and then you're coming in like you clearly have you know you had written the book had some journalistic experience so you had some actual like working writer experience so you came at it from a different way um so like not knowing how to talk about or not having the vocabulary like had what was that like for you and how did you start to learn that language yourself that so you could be like you know as fluent in that language as they were Yeah, it was it was really scary. It was intimidating. And my first workshops, I I never spoke out. Mm -hmm. I never talked in workshop. I didn't know how to have a literary discussion. Um, I think over time, you know, I watched and learned and listened. And and at first, I felt like, wow, everyone knows so much more than I do. And, you know, I have nothing to contribute to this conversation. And I think really just like returning to writers, that I loved initially, like Michelle T and Dorothy Allison and Mary Carr. I think going back to read them reminded me that maybe I do have something to bring to the table. It's not going to be the same as this person next to me. And sometimes that person across the room is just really trying to impress the teacher. (laughs) And it, it might not be like, you know, real valid analysis anyway. Um, so it took a little while for me to, get more confident in in my uniqueness and trust what I had to bring to the table might be interesting too. Right. And it's into like what Roy Peter Clark calls like X-ray reading, you know, is it really getting into the bones of a, of a text? How do yeah. you, how do you balance trying to read enough volume, you know, enough books per year with that, <laughs> degree of uh oh geez blanking on the word but that degree of like uh in-depth reading you know like there's a balance because you can't just fly through it eventually you kind of have to i don't take your time with those sentences so uh, how do you how do you balance the the speed to read but also the to slow down so you can get underneath underneath it all yeah well i feel really fortunate because i teach memoir And I feel like that's given me an excuse to buy a lot of memoirs and read a lot of memoirs now. Um, I I mean, otherwise, I feel like I don't have a ton of pleasure reading time. Not that reading is without pleasure, but um, a lot of times I'm buying books and reading them with an eye toward 
what could I use this for? Or what's in here that I could share with students? You know, the, oh, these are great examples of telescoping, you know, make a note to use in class. These are great ex examples of compression. This is a great example of, a, you know, a well fleshed out scene, whatever it may be. So I am reading memoir, especially with a critical, a more critical eye than I ever did before grad school. And now that I'm a teacher, there's, there's a greater purpose for it. You know? Who are some uh, some writers and memoirists that just knock you back in your chair? Hmm. Um, like I said, Michelle T., Mary Carr, Dorothy Allison. I I just taught a class last night, and I brought these four memoirs in to show. Um, okay, so we've got Cheryl Strayed, Wild. Yeah, Cheryl Strayed, Wild, Autobiography of a Face, Lucy Greeley, um, fellow UNCW alum, Nothing Left to Burn, Burn by Jay Varner. Uh, a friend of mine, Jillian Lauren, wrote this book, Everything You Ever Wanted. Um, I use my friend's book, A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints by Ditto Montiel, a bunch in memoir classes. It's a really sort of experimental structure and poetic voice. Yeah, so I'm, I'm always changing it up, but I inhale memoirs. Huh. <laughs> and so... And now getting to the the piece that I read from you that made me want to reach out to you was uh, this great little blog post, which probably was maybe 300 words long <laughs> in, in yeah. the neighborhood. It's called uh, you Never Call Yourself a Writer and in, in Other Rules for Writing. And uh, <laughs> what, where did that, it's such a great seesaw piece and we'll put it in the show notes and everything so everyone can read it. It's, uh, it's such a, it's such a fun piece to read. And I wonder, um, where did that piece come from? Okay. Well, part of it came from being a bewildered grad student and all the advice that you get. And actually, one of the lines there, you know, is directly ripped from my life. Before I went off to grad school, someone told me, don't go to grad school. You'll lose your voice. Mm -hmm. You have such a great voice and you're going to get that MFA voice. I didn't even know what that was at the time. And looking back, you know, like, being a first generation college student who's like scrambled my way into college. That was such a stunning thing to hear. You know, it was, it was that was kind of scary. Um, so I used that in the piece. And now that I teach memoir and work with a lot of writers, you know, I just hear all kinds of, there's all kinds of crazy advice out there. And most of it is contradictory. And I've had students come to me and ask me, am I too old? Is it too late? Um, one teacher told me to do this, or my friend said I should do that. And, and I just realized how overwhelming all of this information is. There's really no one right way to do your art. And, um, I started that piece maybe six months ago hmm. and I just wrote a couple lines, just wrote a couple of contradictory ideas that I'd been hearing that have been floating around and then I went back to it every couple months I'd think about it and just add a couple things and add a couple things so it wasn't written all in one sitting it was <laughs> written in teeny tiny pieces over a period of time because I'd be like oh yeah that's something that people always say too oh that's great <laughs> and I'd add to that so and you know I'd, I'd always wanted to be published in brevity too I'd been rejected by brevity before yeah <laughs> so me really too <laughs> I was really excited. I sent this initially to um, be considered for the craft essays, and the editor wrote me back 
Julie, Julia, she was really sweet, wrote me back and said, this isn't right for craft essays, but I think it'd be great on the blog. Send it to Dinty Moore with a photo and a bio. And so I sent it to him and I didn't hear back. And then I heard back from him the morning that it was published. (laughs) (laughs) So so I really didn't know that it was going to be published until it was. It, it, it looked and looking back at it the, this morning it, it got it's got a lot got a lot of play a lot of comments too like a lot of people yeah. uh yeah, yeah i think it had like 36 comments which i think is kind yeah. of a lot a lot of people they because it, it seesaws between yeah do this but not, then this and it basically <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's so so people are like picking they're seeing themselves and some part of those clauses and they're yeah, like yes I like guess. thank you for saying this and it they, i guess it resonated yeah didn't you sent me a an analytics um screenshot at the end of the week after or maybe it was the next day after it ran and you know it was it was this graph and he said see that big blue line on the end that's you you've gotten three thousand hits and two days or something <laughs> so he's like i i knew it was good but i guess you really uh, hit a nerve and, and like, now oh. you're on the hashtag cnf podcast i know look at me now <laughs> <laughs> but it's um it's funny to me how many people also um didn't get it and took it literally as real writing advice i've had a couple there are a couple comments on there and i've seen on facebook some people were like oh <gasps> what? How dare you tell people not to go to grad school? They'll lose their voice. And I'm like, um, it was satire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, um, ultimately what it really is, is it's a permission slip for people. It's like, just remove all the worry like this, find yourself in here and take the leap. And the last clause of the, our independent clause or dependent, whatever, whatever you call it, I I feel grammar, I, but I can't sometimes point <laughs> to things. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just at the very end, it's just just right, and that's basically that's what it is. That's what it boils down to. Is uh, it's like the sixteen-year-old Shauna who just started the zine. She all you you just wrote, and that's <laughs> what this piece is. It's giving those people permission to dance with that fear and to just put something down because you can't be a writer unless at least you're willing to write bad stuff you have to write the bad stuff until and then it will hopefully become good over time but you gotta at least be willing to put out bad stuff first yeah thank you i hope so yeah just right i guess that's the only true line in the whole piece (laughs) right (laughs) <laughs> what is some i mean i guess you could read this and and deduce what uh what bad advice you you hear or have or have been told but what what might be some of the most sort of frequent bad advice you hear if you feel comfortable uh, pres- uh sort of uh, uh diagnosing certain advices particularly harmful hmm. um well some people advise showing your memoir drafts to your family before publishing. And I don't think that's a good idea. Um, I didn't, but I was also very naive at the time about the whole process, but I don't, I just don't think it's a good idea to show your family, your early work period, whether it's a memoir or short story or whatever, unless you come from this huge literary family and maybe they'll have some good advice. But, um, I find that that just becomes an excuse to not write 
<laughs> yeah, I could never show so and so this, you know, or so and so will never approve this. Yeah. And you know, that's just if you want to keep yourself from writing, then keep coming up with those excuses. But um, yeah, maybe there are just untold excuses like that, and that's usually just fear of yeah. of yeah, just you know of you know you have this idea in your head, and then there's a fear that you can't translate what's in your head down down into your computer or into a notebook so it's yeah it's like it's like what you're saying like you're just putting a it's easy to say no if you put that roadblock in front of you yeah and then maybe not so much prescribed advice but the, the also i think the cliches are dangerous you know this idea of the the drunken writer or you have to have a, you know, you have to be high to really tap into some inner voice, you know, like these societal cliches, I think are, um, are unfortunate because you, you don't, right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just not true. You don't, you don't necessarily need an MFA and you don't need to be a drunk to be a good writer. I mean, there's t- millions of examples of people who've done it their own way. So, so when you're, in the throes of a, of an essay or a feature article or column, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, what, mm-hmm. what tends to be your, your morning routine or how you start warming up the muscles? Uh, if you are in fact a morning person, but like, what is your, what, what would you say your routine is as you start to get going? Yeah. Um, I'm totally an early bird. I never sleep past five thirty or six for some reason. I think it's just genetic. Um, <laughs> And I like to get my body moving. Uh, I live in LA. I'll go to a yoga class or take a long walk or take a bike ride. And something about getting the blood moving, I think, gets the blood moving through my brain too. Get some caffeine, some tea. I don't drink coffee, but get some um, nice black tea going and then hit the computer as soon as I'm done exercising. Um, And that's that's where I can get lost in time and that's where the magic happens. Hmm. Um, I can really just focus and immerse myself in words and forget about other things. I mean, there are other things, deadlines and things pulling me, but I like to just, I like having a deadline that, that pushes me as well. I mean, I guess coming from a journalism background, there's nothing like a deadline to get my ass moving. Yeah. Yeah. And what are you still learning and discovering about writing and and reading? Mm. There's always more to learn. God, I mean, I haven't read most of the classics. I I don't have enough reading time in my (laughs) Um, audiobooks are a miracle. <laughs> My eyes are so tired at the end of the day from, you know, teaching online classes or reading student papers or answering emails that I love now to just plug in and close my eyes and put my earbuds in and, and listen to a book too. That's just another way to get lost in story without using my eyes. It's a it's a little bit different absorption process i guess but i love that as a yeah. relaxation tool <laughs> yeah it's a way of reading without reading it's really yeah. a, it's nice like that yeah so yeah i don't know um yeah there's just so many more books to be read 
<laughs> it's all <so much> time. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think on that on that note, uh, Shauna, you know, I'll let you get out of here. Um, this was really wonderful and fun to speak to you about about your approach. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Brendan. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, take care, and we'll be in touch. Big ups. Big thanks to Shauna for taking the time to speak with little old me. Hey, if you got something out of this podcast, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app or Google Play Music. Leave a review. Share this with a buddy. Thanks again. Let the riff take you out. (laughs) 